Moment of silence. <laughs> now we're getting somewhere. Now you can hear me all right. Thank you. And I'd like to talk about a subject that I am an expert about, um, world-renowned in this field, in this subject, and the subject is me. Because uh, uh, there's people that are in this room that know me and, and think a lot more of me than I really am, and there's people that think a lot less of me than I really am. The only true person that knows exactly who I am and what I'm about is me and my higher power, which is God. So that's why I believe I'm an expert about me, uh, and I try to share my strength, hope, and experience. I never tell people that I sponsor or in the program what to do. I always share what I have done, and I will try to do that tonight. And uh, I don't do a drunk log, but I go through the steps of the program as I learned them, and because the first step is about finding out that I was powerless over alcohol, my life was unmanageable. I'll tell you why I figured out that I was powerless over alcohol and why my life was unmanageable, and it probably will sound like a drunk log. I ended up going into detox on Labor Day morning, uh, 1982. And I went in detox that morning because I was out on a five or six day binge before that, which had happened to be four. That wasn't anything new that happened that I would be out on a binge. I uh, left on Wednesday before Labor Day, uh, went out and got drunk, stayed out uh, Wednesday night and Thursday night, come home uh, Friday morning to my wife and my son. Um, and uh, she was pretty angry, which had happened before. And I uh, wanted to know where there was a substance in the house that I used other than alcohol. And I asked her where it was, and she wouldn't tell me. And I got violent. And I wrecked everything in the house, turned over everything, broke things. I picked up my wife and threw her across the bedroom. Across the bed, she landed on the floor on the other side of the bed. And I stood over with my fist up, and the look on her face horrified me that she was so scared. And it disgusted me that I was that way. But I didn't do anything right then. I left. I was still drunk and proceeded to drink for the next three days. And I went home uh, on Labor Day morning to my house, and it was exactly the way I left it on Friday. Everything broken and destroyed, and my wife and my son were gone. All these circumstances have happened at one time or another in my drinking history. So there was nothing newer, more devastating of that drunk. I spent the whole paycheck, always things that had happened before. And I uh, called my friend and wanted to know where my wife was. I wanted to apologize, and he uh, said she doesn't want to have anything to do with you. Uh, it was a guy I worked with on the fire department, and he suggested I go to detox. And being on the fire department in EMS, I says, that's where we always take the Jakey bums, and I'm an upstanding citizen, you know. And uh, he says, not like that, you know, he really strongly suggested I go there. And I thought about it, and I said, if I go do this, maybe she'll really believe I'm doing something about my drinking. Because six months or nine months prior to this, at Christmas time, uh, I don't know what I did, probably similar things that I did on Labor Day weekend. Uh, I can't remember exactly what the circumstances were, but I promised to quit drinking, and I did uh, for five months until May. 
And on May 13th, which was my birthday, I talked her into letting me go out and drink because I had every year since I was 13 years old got drunk on my birthday in May. And uh, she okayed it. She said, you know, go ahead. So I got out of work that morning at 8 o'clock and I took another substance that would help me drink a lot longer than not taking that substance and I started drinking liquor and beer and everything at 8 o'clock in the morning at a bar that I always hung around with uh, or at and uh, a friend of mine owned the bar and I stayed there all morning then went around to a lot of other bars and um, went back later that afternoon with my ex-wife, my wife at the time and I started to really give my friend that owned the bar a hard time about being cheap and not, to, you know, buying me a drink and, you know, I've been drinking there for years and my wife said, you were there this morning, he bought you a birthday cake, he was buying you anything you wanted, you didn't have to pay for anything and I was in a blackout and didn't know it and I chewed him out and I come to find that out later on since I've been in recovery that that was a blackout and not realizing it. From that point on, uh, because she gave me permission, I started drinking the worst part of my life was from May 13th until Labor Day. I just drank pretty consistently. I drank on the job. Uh, I drove fire engines drunk. I uh, drove fire engines stoned. I uh, was a driver on a rescue squad and I had a reputation of driving really, really fast. And I happened to smoke a joint one night and we had a call and I was driving in Troy, weaving in out of traffic, thinking I'm flying, and my captain looked over at me and says, why are you driving so slow? And I thought I was driving fast. He had no clue. Those are the kinds of things that happened to me. So that whole six months is probably what built up to what happened on Labor Day. But I went into detox Labor Day morning. Uh, the emergency room, they asked me uh, probably the questions out of it, uh, the AA pamphlet, and uh, I answered them all truthfully, and I think I answered them all yes. You know, I, there was no doubt in my mind that I had a problem with alcohol. It was clear as hell, uh, looking back on my life. Some of the other points of recognizing that um, I had a problem with alcohol. I got out of the service in 1969, and uh, about two weeks after I got out of service, I went to a girlfriend's house and was drinking, and on my way home, a gentleman ran out in front of me, and I hit him and killed him. Uh, I didn't think I was drunk. I definitely was under the influence of alcohol, and it was in 1969. I wasn't charged, uh, so I didn't really get in any real trouble. But I made a decision that day that it happened, the next day, that I would not drive anymore. I wasn't going to give up drinking, but I would not drive anymore. And I uh, didn't for six months. Uh, and in June, um, I was at a friend's house. We were having a party, and I was drunk as hell. And he said, Bill, we ran out of beer. He says, you got to go get some. And I said, y you know I'm not driving. He says, you got to drive sometime. So the very first time I drove, after killing somebody under the influence of alcohol, I drove drunk. And that was in 1969, and I continued to do that up until the day I went into detox, drove drunk in spite of the fact that I had killed somebody under the influence of alcohol. It's the kind of alcoholic I am, the alcoholic I was, active alcoholic. So there was no, absolute no denial, you know, they asked me the question and yes I was powerless and yes my life was completely unmanageable because it, 
and that qualified me to get into detox. Again, I went to that detox to try to get my wife back, and she wouldn't respond, uh, asking her to call, or her friends asking her to call. Uh, and then finally on Wednesday, or Thursday of that week, she did come to the hospital. She came up to see me, and she started questioning me about who I was with on the three-day or four-day weekend, and accused me of being with some woman that I wasn't, not that I wasn't guilty of that kind of stuff, but I wasn't, and I was adamant about it, I wasn't. And I said, if you're here to help me with my drinking, fine. If not, get the F out. <laughs> and she did. She walked out of the detox. And I said, the only reason I came here was to get her back, and I just threw her out. The detox happened to be at the hospital over in Troy that overlooked downtown Troy, which is where I did all my drinking, pretty much. And I looked out the window, and I said, I'm going to go to my favorite bar down there and just give up. I went back to my room and there was a young guy in the room uh, that was in detox a couple more days than I was and he talked to me and one of the nurses in detox came in and talked to me and to this day I have no idea what they said but I made a decision not to leave. And from that Labor Day till now I have not had a drink or a drug. So I don't know what they said but it did something to me. I ended up going to a rehab, and I, was, I feel real fortunate. The rehab I was at at the time was able to use the big book in the 12 and 12, and that's what their whole program ran out of was this. And uh, I started listening, and I started to uh, get an understanding that there was much more involved with my drinking than my drinking. And when they started talking about, you know, turning my life over to God, that was my first thing that I balked at. I was brought up with a religion uh, that I grew away from and uh, a God that I feared and brought me no comfort and uh, there was no way I was going to believe that it was in a power greater than myself. And when they asked me to, to pray and to turn my life over to a God uh, and part of my prejudice against religion was I saw a lot of hypocrites, what I perceived as hypocrites in the church, and I was not going to be a hypocrite. I wasn't going to ask for God's help, you know, at this point because I needed help. I even went as far as to say, and this is the truth, that my son was really sick a couple years before that, uh, seriously sick, and I would not pray to God to get him better because I thought that would be really hypocritical. And I told him, you know, if I wouldn't do that for my own son, I'm certainly not going to ask God to help me. And the gentleman in the rehab said, do you think if you weren't alcoholic, you would have been like that, not being able to ask for help for your son? And I had to kind of agree with that. So he says, if you can recover from alcoholism, do you think you could be a better father? And I absolutely believe that to be true. I feel so fortunate that when they wrote this, they must have known it was a person like me coming along because they put God as we understood. So I didn't have to have the God that was taught to me or that anybody else understood, one that made sense to me. And like I said, the one that I believed in all my life didn't make any sense and uh, I was afraid of. And never in my life did God bring me any comfort. It was just what I, I interpreted, I believe, what I was taught. So God wasn't something that I was comfortable with. But I did hear some people talk about their concept of God and different people had different ideas about their concept of God. But some of the things that I took from some of the people 
was an all-forgiving and loving God. And that kind of made sense to me. And one of the gentlemen in the rehab, you know, said something to me along those lines um, about being uh, able to turn my life over to that. <coughs> Excuse me. And I, I started with a spark of a belief in this God. So I was willing to turn my life over to this kind of God. I made that decision. And uh, it wasn't profound. It wasn't a you know, vast spiritual experience. It was just enough of a spark to have some hope from the second step produced hope in me. When I did the third step, it produced some faith in me, a little bit of faith, but exactly enough faith to do a fourth step. Prior to doing a fourth step, I went to the counselor and I said, you know, if it wasn't for my drinking, I'm a pretty nice guy. You know, under the influence of alcohol and other things, you know, I, I just, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, I just resemble my normal person, but little. So I um, <clears throat> said, I have no other problems other than I drink too much. And she says, we guarantee we'll find you problems. <laughs> and they did. But they gave me a list to look at of things that, you know, I might want to take a look at you know, relationships, family, career, uh, sex, financial problems, health problems. And I went, wait a minute, go back to sex. <laughs> I said, if there's anything I'm more obsessive than, or as obsessive as I am with alcohol and drugs, it's probably sex. I said, I've always cheated on the women I was with. Uh, I was never faithful to anybody any pleasure I could get, no matter who it was or who it would hurt, it didn't matter to me, I would do that. Not proud of that, but that's the way I was. So I said, that might be an area to look at. And I sat down with her, and it came out after some discussions of looking at my past and looking at the person I was and how I kind of developed, that had come out that at 13 years old, I had a same-sex experience that produced a lot of shame and guilt in me and uh, changed my life forever. I became uh, unable to look less than manly, is why I fought all the time, why I was not faithful to my wife's or women or girlfriends. And she asked me after I went through that and many other things, but that was like a big spotlight of a lot of shame and guilt. It produced probably the reason I ended up being a fireman, because I was never looking to be a fireman, but I was told by my uh, cousin who was a fireman that it was a good job. And uh, at the time I was tending bar and working in a factory, and I was drinking very heavily. And he said at that time, and this was a long time ago, that I started on the fire department because I since retired. Um, at that time, they're working Monday for 24 hours, off Tuesday, Wednesday for 24 hours, off Thursday, Friday for 24 hours, and then six days off. And I went, that's great. Well, that time off to drink. Uh, by the time I retired, we worked one day on and three days off. But I had quit drinking by that time. So, so I took the job mainly because it would be helpful with my loving to drink. But I was on the job for a while. and. Uh, I started getting challenged to, you know, run in burning buildings, and I did. Uh, and I got really good at it. And guys 
used to make a comment, or some guys made a comment to me, that, geez, Bill's never afraid. Little did they know that I was really scared every single time about going into a burning building, but I was much more afraid of what they would think of me if I didn't. Because what happened to me at 13 years old, I didn't want to look less than manly, so it motivated me you know, to go and do things that I really was afraid to do, including fighting people that I knew I shouldn't fight. Because I was going to get my ass kicked, and I did often, but I would not give up. And I shared this with some people. I got in a fight one night with a boxer, and I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> and I said something to him, and we went outside, and he hit me, and I went down in the mud. I got up, and he hit me again. I went down <laughs> four, five, six, seven times. And he said, Bill, and he was a guy I worked with on the fire department. He says, Bill, stop getting up. <laughs> and I wouldn't. And he uh, walked away. Um, that's the macho stuff I live with. That, you know, just pushed me and pushed me. So when I saw that in my fourth step, and I talked to the woman at the rehab about it, she asked me if I would share the other parts of that, uh, my fourth step and fifth step with some other people in a group, and I did. I went in this room uh, with the people I was in a group with, and it was, I don't know, five or ten, I don't know, people in the room, men and women, uh, some construction worker from New York, macho type, and uh, some women, and she asked me to talk about that, and I talked about it. I did my complete fifth step in front of these people, and I cried through the whole thing. It was painful to me uh, to say those things about me that I often, under the influence of alcohol, hit my wife, that I had an experience at 13 years old that produced all that shame. And when I got done, some of the people thanked me and shared that they had similar things happen, and they thanked me for sharing. And I walked out of the room down a hallway, and an overwhelming feeling uh, came over me of peace. I felt clean. And the only time looking back in my life that I can remember feeling that completely weightless of guilt and shame and that never happened to me from the time I was 12 when I made a good confession in church. I'm 12 years old before or after or before that sexual experience happened, I uh, never made a good confession, never got that feeling again. So when I walked out of that room, it was to me that feeling of being completely naked in front of other human beings. And it, I guess it was the ego deflation at depth, and it, it certainly, to me, produced a much stronger faith in what I believe is God. And uh, what I thought with that overwhelming feeling was, I want more of this. Because like I said, all my life I've been addicted to pleasure. I am still pretty much like to have pleasure. And if helping somebody in the program brings me pleasure, I help. If it didn't, I probably wouldn't. You know, uh, there's always a payoff. So I don't know if that's, you know, good or bad, but it gets the job done. Um, so I did leave that rehab, and I uh, started working 
the best of my ability. You know, I, once I realized the defects of character, my pride and my anger and my greed and lust caused me all the problems I had all my life, I was entirely ready to be free of them. I am still today entirely ready to be free of every defect of character I have because I absolutely know it creates a difference, uh, a wall, or a separation from me and you people. And I felt all my life separate from people. I, you know, even though I had low self-esteem, I uh, had an excessive amount of pride, so I was stuck in a place that I either felt that I was better than you or that I was worse than you. I never felt the same as. And when I got into Alcoholics Anonymous and shared that with other people and they shared their uh, stuff with me, I recognized that I am the same today as everybody. Uh, I still am working hard at getting rid of my prejudices uh, my, uh, with the church I'm working on. Uh, I still have old ideas that I'm constantly trying to get rid of and I'm working on. Um, but basically, I, I feel the same as most people. I don't feel better or worse than them, on the large part. So I uh, <clears throat> started recognizing I had to make amends to some people that I had harmed. And I did that because I wanted to feel better about myself. You know, I want to clean up my side of the street so I could feel good. And I, I did some for that very reason, without any consideration for the other people, but just so I could feel better. I was having coffee at Friendly's one night, and a guy, you know, talked to me. He said, do you think there's any possibility that, you know, this is a spiritual program uh, and that the amends steps may be spiritual in nature and they may not be just for you to feel better? Is you think there's any possibility it's to help heal others? <laughs> and I believe that to be true. I said, you know, that makes a lot more sense. Because if I go to my wife, who I sometimes hit under the influence of alcohol and say, I'm really sorry that I did that, you know, I, I got to do this uh, amend stuff so I can feel better about myself. I, I don't think that would go over very good with her, you know. But if I go to my wife and say, you know, I'm really sorry that I was the way I was and go to my children and say, I'm really sorry I was the way I was, but it was me, uh, had nothing to do with you, you weren't, not, you weren't unlovable or you weren't good children or you weren't a good wife, that there was something wrong with me, and I take responsibility for that, and I am sorry to help heal them. And I believe, for me today, that is the absolute reason for the amend step, not just so I can feel better, but as a result of doing it the right way, or the right way for me, uh, with consideration of helping heal others, um, I, I am free of that past, all of it. So having done that, uh, there was a couple incidences um, where there was some people that I, I was counseling after I got out of re uh, rehab, and I was talking to a counselor, and we had a discussion about, you know, uh, how I am treating my children, uh, that I really didn't see them much, I really wasn't involved in their lives, and uh, I didn't, you know, I told them I loved them, but I didn't really get involved with them. And I also said my father was kind of the same way to me. I don't ever remember my father, you know, ever telling me he loved me or, you know, any kind of intimate stuff at all. And uh, she said, did you ever tell your father you loved him? And I said, I don't remember, probably as a child I might have, but I don't remember doing that since then. 
And she said, you might want to consider doing that. So because of wanting to not have regrets, because I heard somebody in AA said they regretted that they never got to make those kind of amends or do that kind of stuff for their parents, and they died, and they regretted they couldn't do it. So they inspired me to go to my father, who happened to be in a hospital for, it wasn't anything serious, but he was in the hospital. And I walked into his room, and uh, we talked for a while, and I was getting ready to leave. And I said, I'm, I'm on my way home. I said, I'll see you later. I said, I love you. And he said, yeah, you ought to say that more often. <laughs> so I bit my lip, and I walked out, and I got in the elevator, and I was pissed and said some <laughs> nice things about him. And the following week, I went to my counselor, and I said, you know what the son of a bitch said? <laughs> my father was a retired cop and steel worker. So she said, do you think there's any possibility in his own way, he was saying he liked hearing it and would like to hear it more often. I'm not a very good listener. <laughs> and I, had, I, I said, that's probably really a good possibility. That was like in uh, April or May, uh, the following Christmas, because I did it every time I left their house. Say, love you, without worrying about a response. And I didn't get angry. I just did it in, for six, almost nine or ten months on Christmas. I'm the youngest of eight. Uh, I got seven older brothers and sisters. They all have children and grandchildren. So they all gather at my mother and father's house on Christmas Eve. So the whole house was packed with everybody you know, in the family. And I walked in, and my father walked over me, put his arms around and hugged me, and he said in my ear, I love you. And I mean, I felt it. I really felt it. About four months later, uh, he had a stroke and, and shortly after that died. And I just can't thank people in AA enough that had brought out the fact that they had not made those amends and that they shared that with me, that they had not done that and they regretted it, that they gave me the courage to do that. So when my father did die, I had no regrets. And when he did die, it was at noontime or quarter after 12, and I was in a meeting in Green Island chairing the meeting and left the meeting and went to the hospital, found out he had died, and I was okay. My mother, about five, six years ago, uh, ended up getting really sick. She's 98 years old. She was in the hospital, uh, and we knew it was time. And again, I have seven brothers and sisters and all the grandchildren and all, a lot of my friends uh, and my wife were in the room as she was taking her last breath and I held her in my arms um, because being a, a medic they wanted me to be close to her, a paramedic, or not, an EMT, not a paramedic. And she took her last breath and I told them that was her last breath. And it, it was the most peaceful death I've experienced in my whole life. So a lot of things have changed for me uh, because of this program, because people in the meetings told me what the program of recovery was about, and the people that I listened to were talking about this. There's an actual way to recover written in here, and it tells you exactly and precisely how to do it. Uh, and I was real grateful, and I really feel fortunate that there was enough people around that did that for me at the time because if I had just not drank, 
Um, I would, might have killed somebody or killed myself, but I would have still died of alcoholism, I believe, without ever picking up a drink. So I'm an absolute believer there is a program of recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, I take this so much for granted most days, and it's probably why I'm told often I should try to make a gratitude list. And I've even been given exercises by some people as to help me not take things for granted. And one of them came from a friend of mine, his uh, daughter. And she said, listen, if you had a choice between losing your hearing or losing your eyesight, which would you choose? And she gave me time to think about it. And if you want a little time to think about it, think if you had to make that choice. Would you rather lose your eyesight or lose your hearing? And some of the things I thought about is I love listening to music, and I love listening to the sound of people in my life's voices. I love all those things that uh, you hear out in the woods. It'd be hard to give up not being able to hear people speak. But I also wouldn't want to give up the things that I see that are beautiful. Expressions on people's faces, you know, beautiful sunset, probably a lot of the corny stuff. The purpose of the exercise was to help me recognize that I take those both things so for granted. So it's an exercise I can use because if it was possible to make me feel the intensity of the pain I felt when I was over my wife with my fist, the shame and guilt, or the incomprehensible demoralization I felt in the last days of my drinking, if you could make me feel that for five seconds right now, that intense emotional pain, and then let me feel the way I feel right now about who I am and what I am, you couldn't wipe the smile off my face. But I don't smile all that much. So there's, that's another reason I know I take things for granted, and I have to work at this. I don't use those things to beat myself up. I think I am exactly and precisely where God wants me to be. You know, I've asked him, and with all the sincerity that I can, to remove these things that uh, create my problems and keep me from God, my defects of character, my humanity. But I also recognize that I want to be, and my favorite prayer in AA is the prayer of St. Francis. And I want to live that to the best of my ability. And I want to stop being the part that uh, my defects of character create. But unfortunately, God made me with both. I have my humanity, and I have the ability to become more spiritual and to make some spiritual progress. So I don't beat myself up for God's work. I do my best, I think, to cooperate. I fall short. I miss the mark. But I also have to recognize that I have asked God for help. And uh, if God hasn't rendered me pure snow, he may have a reason. I don't know. All I know is I don't want to be the person I was, and I do want to become the person I can be. And you people want me to be, you people make me want to become a better man. So with that, I don't know if I can speak anymore. I just, uh, 
am so honored and so grateful and so thankful that I've been given such a gift in my life. I got a wonderful and beautiful wife who is absolutely great to me and tolerates so much of my stuff. Uh, I got a sponsor who I believe loves me, warts and all. I got many friends in this room tonight that I really believe are friends. You know, I am so gifted and so blessed and probably so undeserving. But fortunately, God doesn't give me what I deserve because I wouldn't deserve this, I believe. And I'm really thankful that uh, there are people with courage that talk about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous that's written in here. Because without the wholeness of the program, I wouldn't get the gifts that I have. And I believe the wholeness is the three sides of the triangle, unity, service, recovery. I participate in all that. I go to meetings regularly. I uh, have a service position in a group. Um, <clears throat> I practice to the best of my ability the 12 steps, and I try to carry the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the circle around that makes it a well-rounded program. If I just did not drink and went to meetings, I don't think for me it would be a well-rounded program. I think if I only worked the steps of the program and tried to practice those principles, it wouldn't be a well-rounded program. If I did only service, it would not be a well-rounded program. I need to do all. And I believe that they are all important. I often hear the importance of meetings, and I don't disagree with that. They are absolutely important. The importance of the steps, I don't hear that all that much, but they absolutely are important to me. The importance of service, I don't think we would have this gathering tonight if somebody wasn't in service. So that is absolutely important. So I try to do all those things. And I uh, have got all the rewards. And one last thing I'll share. There's a friend of mine who's a caterer said he has this recipe for the most perfect chocolate chip cookies in the world. And if you follow that recipe exactly the way it says, you'll get the same exact best chocolate chip cookies in the world. And he says that's like the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Is they've given us a recipe to for the best possible recovery, they tell you the promises, in the world if we follow the recipe exactly. Some people don't want to follow the recipe, and their chocolate chip cookies, their cookies don't come out really well. <laughs> I believe I've gotten the promise of this program because of the grace of God, obviously, uh, because of the help from other people that loved me and cared about me and had the courage to share with me honestly and openly because uh, I wouldn't have been able to. And there was a gentleman in the rehab I was in, uh, the reason I ended up doing a fifth step, because this gentleman shared a story, and it wouldn't be given away as anonymity, but this is what started my real program, of starting to work this program, I believe. This gentleman's story in the rehab I was in. He was a construction worker, real tough, macho guy. He was in Korea during the Korean War. He was telling this story. And uh, on Christmas Eve, they came upon a bunker, and they threw hand grenades in the bunker. And they went in, there was North Korean soldiers in there. 
some of them were alive, some were dead, some were unconscious, and they were so angry about being there on Christmas and the bitter cold that they killed them all. And he shared that. Within a week of my recovery, he shared that story to me, and he cried. And I said, if this gentleman can share that, there is absolutely nothing that I'm going to withhold. As shameful as I felt about what happened to me, I, he gave me everything I have today, and I believe God put him in my path and has put all you people in my path to do exactly that, is to share my strength, hope, and experience and to carry the message that I've had a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps. All those other things are part of that, and I'm carrying that message. So that's why I really work hard when I share or um, speak at a meeting to share my experience with working the 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous, because without it, I wouldn't be the person I am, and I didn't like who I was all my life, and without being arrogant or sounding cocky, I love who I am today and I love the potential to who I can become. And I cannot do it alone. I need you people and God. So again, I'm honored to have uh, been able to speak up here. And uh, if you didn't get anything out of what I had to say, my sponsor taught me everything I know. <laughs> <laughs>